Would you stand, please, as Bill comes this morning to read our scripture for us? I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord from Lamentations 3, 17 through 26. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I've told you from the beginning of this series a few weeks ago that my goal is for this series to be encouraging and to be hopeful, not to be one that after two years of all the struggles we've had will kick us further while we're down or beat us up even more. And each time I say that, you might wonder, then why did you pick the book of Lamentations to be the one we're going through? But certainly here in chapter 3, we see hope, encouragement, and light even in the midst of darkness. I was also encouraged recently to learn that I'm not the only one that's looking for some ways to bring hope and encouragement. I loved this little project that I came across from a kindergarten class in Healdsburg, California at the Westside Elementary School. They were trying to decide what their annual project would be, and they put together what they call their, their hope hotline to get a pep talk. This is something you may have seen. If you need a little motivation today, call this number. It's a school project where kindergartners give you a pep talk. So I thought we might do this this morning together. And just to prepare you for what you're going to hear when the, the call begins, you're going to hear a child's voice. And the child's going to give you some options. If you're feeling mad, frustrated, or nervous, the child says, press 1. If you need words of encouragement and life advice, press 2. <laughs> if you want a pep talk from kindergartners, press 3. If you need to hear kids laughing with delight, press 4. And for encouragement in Spanish, press 5. So, here we go. Let's do this together. We're going to press three. 
maybe you needed to hear that this morning. You can do it. Keep trying. Don't give up. I love it. If you need some encouragement, kindergartners are a great place to go. And if you're looking for some encouragement and some hope in Lamentations, chapter 3 is the place to go. In your reading, perhaps you noticed that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I hope you've been doing the reading plan with us, both chapter 1 and chapter 2 have exactly 22 verses. So also, chapter 4 and chapter 5 have exactly 22 verses. But here, chapter 3 has 66 verses, and it's structured intentionally in such a way that we would see in the structure a message and meaning, not just in the words that we read, but in the way that the prophet under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, has put all of this together. Even just looking at the structure in English, you can see that the central chapter, being 66 verses, it's meant to be both the center and the high point of Lamentations. But boy, if you were to look at this in Hebrew, and perhaps some of you have, you'd see that there's even so much more to the structure that communicates what the prophet really believes about the trustworthiness of God and the trustworthiness of his word. This book is what's called an acrostic. Every single chapter that has the 22 verses, or in chapter 3, three groups of 22 verses, are because there are 22 Hebrew letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so each one of these psalms not only corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but if you look at it in Hebrew, it goes in order. Verse 1 starts with the letter A, the letter Aleph. Verse 2 starts with the letter Bait, the letter B, and it goes on and on all the way to the last verse, which starts with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Tav. And so the prophet is communicating, even in the structure here, that all of God's word is faithful. All of God's word is trustworthy. From the A to the Z, from the Aleph to the Tav, all of it is perfect and can be trusted. But also by using that order of Aleph, Bait, Gimel, ABC, the prophets also communicating through the structure. Every word and every letter of God's word is perfect and trustworthy. And you also get the sense here as he's writing that God's word is all he has left. God's word is the only thing he has left upon which to stand. The structure with which he writes, as much as the words, declares the prophet's belief that every word which proceeds from the mouth of God can be trusted, and we, too, can stand upon them. So as we go through this text this morning, right here in the beginning there in verse 17, something comes out here in the heart of Lamentations 3 that I would imagine many of us have actually experienced personally. That God's presence is especially evident in brokenness and grief. Now, this is a hard thing sometimes to to understand why this is true or that this is true. It seems counterintuitive. It seems backwards to what we might feel we experience. But some of you, again, may have been through this personally at your lowest moments when you felt most broken, when you've been most grieved or you've suffered the worst loss, that God's presence has been especially evident for you in a way that you've never experienced otherwise. I heard one pastor say, God's presence in brokenness and grief is his A game. It's what he does best because he comforts us when we're hurting. He comforts us in brokenness and grief 
in a way that no one else can comfort us. Only God can do it. And his presence is especially evident for us in those moments. Verse 17 begins with the prophet speaking in the most personal way. We've noted as we've gone through Lamentations that often the language shifts from I to plural to we, but then back to the singular to I. Sometimes the prophet talks about the people. Sometimes he talks about the Lord, but he often comes back to what he's experiencing personally. And we see in verse 17 just how deep his own brokenness and grief is. He says, I have been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I hoped from the Lord is gone. I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitter taste of the gall. I well remember them. And listen to this description of where he is in the moment. My soul is downcast within me. I am at my lowest point. If you look back to the beginning of this chapter and read some of the highlights, or we might call them some of the lowlights of the beginning of chapter 3, just some of the words that the prophet uses to describe vividly just how personal his suffering has been. Verse 1 begins, I, very emphatically, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away. He has made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. He has broken my teeth with gravel, and he has trampled me in the dust. 500 years ago, John of the Cross used these very words to describe what he called the dark night of the soul, what it feels like to be at the lowest point and to feel as if you're receiving something that God has allowed, perhaps even has brought on to you, and to have no better words to describe your current state, but my soul is downcast within me. Now listen, I, before I say the next thing I'm going to say, I want to make clear that I'm not minimizing or trying to minimize anyone's pain, anyone's suffering, loss, or grief. I would never intend to do that. I've faced loss. I've faced grief. You have too. And we've had far too much of that in front of our eyes these last two years to minimize it. So I don't say this in any way to minimize it or to use some sort of a platitude just to make us feel better. But I do believe that often God uses brokenness and grief to get us back into the place where he wants us to be. He uses hardships suffering, difficulty, pain, brokenness, grief, to get us back into the right posture with the right attitude towards him where, in some cases, perhaps we've strayed. God can use even the worst things we experience in our lives for good and for our good and for our good in our relationship with him. 
And actually, the, the Anabaptists of the 15th century, they, they had a word to describe this. And in German, the word is Gelassenheit. It doesn't really have a perfect English equivalent, but it means something like taking the posture of humility, honesty, and self-surrender. One word that's been used to translate this is the word yieldedness. I like that word. To be in a, a consistent posture with a consistent attitude of being yielded to God in humility, in complete honesty, and in self-surrender. To say like the prophet is saying here, Lord, you are all I have left. Your word is the only thing, the only firm foundation upon which I can stand. And because of that, I take the posture of complete and total yieldedness, self-surrender before you, and I say to you, Lord, you are my only hope. The prophet is using that kind of language because, yes, the, the brokenness and the grief is evident here, but also God's presence is clear. And aren't you thankful as you read through a difficult book like Lamentations that verses 21 through 24 are in there to give us some hope? Verse 21. Yet even... As my soul is downcast within me, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, and he addresses God specifically. Great is your faithfulness. Philip and I have been waiting for this week to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. Wasn't that perfect? We should have sang it every week, probably, but so fitting and so such a wonderful expression of what the Scripture teaches here. His mercies, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Here at the heart of Lamentations, the brokenness, the grief, and despair, it turns to hope and faith. And the prophet says, you're all I have left, but I know, I believe, I call this to mind because of your great Kessed love. The word there in Hebrew is the word for covenant. It's not just the kind of love that God feels towards us. This is the deepest word we can use for God's love. It's, it's his love that's built upon his promises, that's built upon his trustworthy word, that will not fail. And the prophet says, I call to mind because of your great covenant love for me and for us as your covenant people. Your promises your mercies, your compassions never fail. The word compassions is another Hebrew word that's really noteworthy. It's, it's actually a word that, that calls to mind a mother's womb. It's a word that, that demonstrates that side of God that is tender and gentle and compassionate, that God loves and cares for his people like a mother cares for her newborn child. Because of your covenant love, because of your tender, gentle compassion mercies which never fail which are new every morning i proclaim to you great is your faithfulness it's beautiful this also brings to mind some other scriptures like the lord is near to the brokenhearted his presence is evident in grief and suffering and as jesus said blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted we stand upon God's word. We stand upon his promises. And, and the fact that his compassions never fail, 
literally what this says is his mercies his compassions are never exhausted we might say it this way god never gets compassion fatigue you familiar with that term i can promise you pastors ministers know about compassion fatigue so do healthcare workers so do caregivers so do counselors social workers teachers parents grandparents that that feeling that you get compassion fatigue when you say i i i'm so numb after so much hurt or so much giving or so much care that i've offered that i i should be feeling this right now but i don't feel it i don't have any any energy left i'm i'm constantly tired my compassion has run out i'm running on empty i don't know that i have anything left to give praise be to god he never gets compassion fatigue he never tires of showing us mercy and grace he never gets tired his mercies never fail his mercies are never exhausted so that the prophet can say i say to myself and i see this both as a realization that the prophet is having but also as a statement of faith the lord is my portion he is all i have therefore i will wait for him the lord is present and it's especially evident in brokenness and grief there's also another part of this if we just move forward to the next section that as a declaration of faith the lord is my portion i will wait for him we see the prophet beginning to express some things that he knows and believes to be true about god and as god brings good things out of the terrible things we experience oftentimes what he's doing is building our faith genuine faith grows when we rest upon what we already know and believe is true about god when we say i will wait for you and i trust you even though i face pain and suffering verse 25 verse 26 verse 27 in hebrew again they all start with the same word not just the same letter but the same word and it's the hebrew word tov and and, and right here at the center of this central passage in lamentations the first word of each of these verses is good your english doesn't really capture that it sort of moves good into the middle of the sentence but let's read it as it was written good is the lord to those whose hope is in him to the one who seeks him good it is to quietly wait for the salvation of the lord good it is for a man to bear the yoke while he is young here the prophet crying out what he knows and believes to be true that god is good that his word is good that the plans that he has for us jeremiah right is good they are good good it is for those who wait for him who seek him and good is the lord to those whose hope is in him brothers and sisters this morning whatever we face when we look to god for hope we remember our hope is not in our own goodness and our hope is not in our own character our hope is in god's goodness and god's character if our hope was in our goodness and our character we would certainly be lost for good but thankfully the lord is good to those who wait for him 
to the soul who seeks him. And I want you to hear this quote. It's, it's a little bit of a, a longer quote. I was going to put it on the screen, but I thought it, it would just be better for you just to hear it. This quote comes from an ancient Christian named Theodoret of Cyrus. And he's quoting this verse here in Lamentations. The, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. And you can hear Theodoret talking as one who has faced difficulty and suffering in his own life. He wrote, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. So let us not murmur at the storm that has arisen. For the Lord of all knows what is good for us. Did he not say, My grace is sufficient for you? For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Let us then bravely bear the evils that befall us. For it is in war that heroes are discerned. It's in conflicts that athletes are crowned. In the surge of the sea, the art of the helmsman is shown. And in the fire, the gold is tried. Don't you love that? Our hope, our faith, is not in our own goodness and our own character, but in God's goodness and character. And blessed are those. Good is it for those who wait on him. Good is to the, the Lord to those whose hope is in him. And these verses, just like the structure of Lamentations in every single word, are a reminder that what the people are facing is also a testimony that God's word is true. That God's infallible word is trustworthy is seen in the consequences they're facing. Because he's been telling them all along. And you hear it in Jeremiah's language, in the prophet's language. He's been telling them all along these consequences would come, and now that they've come, is it not itself a declaration that God's word is true and trustworthy? But that same word that came from God, that was trustworthy, that brought about this destruction as consequences for their sin, is the same word that will once again bring life and restoration to them. Listen to the language of the next verses, verse 31 verses 31 through 33 for no one is cast off by the lord forever though he brings grief he will show compassion so great is his unfailing covenant love for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone and look to verse 37 as the prophet is declaring what he knows and believes to be true about god who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? So why should the living complain? Why should we be complaining then, the prophet says, when we are being punished for our own sins? Again, our hope is in God's character, not our own. Yet at the same time, it is the character that God displays in himself that is the same character he expects us to display in ourselves. We are God's covenant people as the church. These were God's covenant people then. And a part of his consistent commands and instructions to them was always, I'm your God, you are my people, and as I have blessed you, so you are to be a blessing to the rest of the nations of the world. So that when they look at you and they know that you're my people, they will see evidence of my work in and through you in all the places you go. 
But God's covenant people then, just as we often do now, failed. They so often failed to display God's character to the nations. If you look into the Hebrew Scriptures further into the Old Testament, this is the most common description of God's character. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The same characteristics that God demonstrates his covenant people are supposed to demonstrate ourselves. Do we always? Are we always compassionate, gracious? Are we always slow to anger? Are we always abounding in love and faithfulness? No, but that is the standard that God has set because his character is to become our character as we grow in him. I heard a, a beautiful story about this this week from a church in Romania. This church in Romania has actually doubled in size in the last month, and you probably know why. They have Ukrainians with them now, worshiping with them. So half the church is made up of Romanians, half the church from Ukrainians. The pastor, though, of this Romanian church got up this last Sunday, and I love what he said. He made an announcement. He said, church family, from this point forward, we will no longer refer to our Ukrainian brothers and sisters who have recently joined us as refugees. From now on, we will call them our Ukrainian guests, and we will continue to call them that as long as they're here with us. I love that beautiful picture of compassion, kindness, love, grace, welcome, just like God has shown to us. And just by way of encouragement, I hear those things about our church a lot too. We're not perfect. We are still a people who are in process and progress. But in these last several months and last several years, we've seen on display that God's character is at work in our midst and is reproducing in our midst. What we've done just in the last few months for, for lots of refugees who've come to Tulsa, especially those from Afghanistan, so many of you have been a part of that. It's been amazing to watch this church be on the front lines of that welcome. We just this weekend saw our fourth Afghan family move into the fourth house that as you've seen announced in the channel and we've talked about in church that we've put work into and brought a family or families alongside of them and you all have been a part of that what a blessing it's been to these families to see God's love on display through you but it's not just what we do with internationals that I hear about I hear about the ministry center all the time in the community I hear about Jinx Care Point I hear about our volunteers at Hope Pregnancy Center I hear about our, our volunteers at the Baptist Children's Home and at the Springs, and I hear about our children's ministry and our student ministry and our adults and the wonderful welcome and love that people feel when they walk in these doors. We, we have a lot of evidence that God is at work in our midst. But hear me on this, because all that's great, and I love it. But also, we're called to demonstrate God's character through us, not just in the ministries we do, but in our homes, with our spouses, with our kids, with our grandchildren, with our extended family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to the people we come across in our daily life, to folks in the community, the folks we play sports with, do activities with, all along the line, God's people who have experienced all these wonderful benefits of God's character and goodness are to be people who demonstrate those same characteristics to others. And I love Micah 6, 8. This is probably a verse that many of you have memorized, or it's one of your very favorites. 
God has shown you, O oh mortal human being, what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? What's tall, what's, what's good? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to walk in yieldedness with your God. Genuine faith grows upon that which we know and believe is true about God. And God does desire for us as his people to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. But the reality is, as we've already said, we often fall short. I often fall short of that standard. And so, knowing that that is the case, there's some good news for us. The good news that the rest of this chapter really declares, when we fall short, God is still pursuing us. God never stops calling people to turn to him or to return to him. Those who would say, I'm not on the right path, I'm not walking faithfully with God, I'm not actively living in yieldedness and self-surrender, the good news for all who are in that state is that God is always calling us back to return to him. After considering the truth of God's presence, God's goodness, and the trustworthiness of God's word, the prophet moves to a call to repentance. An active work of confessing, repenting, and then praying for God's deliverance. Notice in verse 40, the language shifts back to, to us, to we. Here is our call to repentance this morning. Let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled against you, and you have not forgiven us. And you hear in the language, Why have they not received, experienced God's forgiveness? Because they have still not yet repented. But upon that moment, the prophet is proclaiming, when we call out to you, when I call out to you, God, in confession and repentance, and I say to you, Lord, examine my heart, test me, see if there's any offensive way in me, and if so, lead me back on the path of righteousness. When I do that, and I turn with heart and hand back to the God of heaven, he will receive my confession he will receive my repentance. Listen, he will forgive my sin and he will lead me out of darkness and into the light. The process of redemption, much like our salvation, is a process. Self-examination is something we need to do often and continually submit ourselves before the Lord that he might shine a light into the darkest corners of our heart and show us where we need forgiveness. But you know, just as the choir sang today, they couldn't know what we know now. The prophet didn't know what we know now, that the way for us to receive that forgiveness and to experience that, that repentance and that full right relationship with God, we don't have to do what they had to do. We don't have to go back and slaughter animals. We don't have to offer our, our first fruits that we might go through some process of following the law or sacrifices. We know about the cross. 
we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for us once and for all so that he is the resurrection and the life. The grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death once and for all. And my friends, it is done. We know what they couldn't know. We know what even Jeremiah the prophet did not know. That Jesus sits upon, upon a throne of grace and we can approach his throne of grace with confidence knowing that we will find mercy and grace in our time of deepest need. A pep talk from kindergartners is great. But this morning, our call is to turn to a much greater and a much higher source of encouragement and hope. And I want to invite you to, to bow your heads with me. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer that is language from Lamentations. This prayer language is from Lamentations here in this chapter near the end that that helps us turn our hearts to God or back to God, whichever one you need to do this morning. And so as I pray these words, you're welcome to keep your eyes closed and just, just hear these words, pray these words as they're spoken over you. But I'll also have the words on the screen if you want to see them. And make this your prayer, our prayer language from Lamentations to turn our hearts and our hands towards the God of heaven in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case, and you redeemed my life.